You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. As we begin our study of the book of Philippians, we find its author, the Apostle Paul, neck deep in a situation that we'd see as frightening. It's brimming with conflict, it's got personal pain, and there's a lot of uncertainty. He is in prison. He is in prison for the Christ. He is in prison for defending the gospel. He is in prison, and he really doesn't know if he will ever be set free. Adding insult to injury, some of his fellow proclaimers of the gospel, his fellow preachers, saw his imprisonment as a way for them to move up a notch or two because Paul seemed to be moving down a notch or two by being in prison. He was petty. And yet, while Paul does not hide or downplay his situation, the vast majority of chapter 1, where he communicates what is happening to him, it's optimistic It's thankful, it's prayerful, it's affectionate toward the church in Philippi, it's selfless, it's hopeful, it's confident, it's joyful, all of which flows from his firm belief in the gospel, his unshakable faith in Christ. When faced with the possibilities of either release or execution, Paul only sees deliverance, regardless of what happens. Not deliverance in the way we might think of it, oh, Jesus is going to get me out of jail, but deliverance in light of the gospel. This is where he writes uh, most famously, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is nothing but deliverance in Paul's future, regardless of what happens. He spills no ink, whining or complaining about his situation. It is a firm and a fearless Paul whose mind is fixed on the gospel of Christ and on its advancement, who writes the following exhortation to the church at Philippi. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened by anything of your opponents. How does a church live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? By fearlessly standing firm for the faith of the gospel in one spirit and by fearlessly striving together for the faith of the gospel with one mind. Standing firm, striving together, one spirit, one mind, fearless. Standing firm, and striving together. The idea of standing firm in this passage has a military connotation. It's that idea of the soldier who absolutely will not abandon his post no matter what the cost. He stands firm to the bitter end. Now many of you are uh, native Texans and so you probably automatically think of a place downtown that is the perfect example of this concept of standing firm in the midst of a battle, the soldier never leaving his post. That's the Alamo. Uh, Many of you consider yourselves to be Texans. You've been here that long. I still think of myself as a Missouri farm boy, but uh, eight men of Missouri did die in the Alamo, so I reckon I can lay some claim to it. 
Regardless, you get the idea. The idea is to never abandon your post, to stand firm, come what may. You never surrender the gospel of Jesus Christ for anything. The second idea of striving together is much more of an athletic idea. It has the background of sport, of athletes, of, of athletics. It's the, it's the idea, I mean, Paul wouldn't have been thinking of this, but it fits perfectly with the terminology of the basketball team, right? There are five players, but they're playing as one team, uh, one man, one mind, one team. Now, I don't follow basketball, so I have no idea if the Spurs were a good illustration of this last year or if they were a bad illustration of this last year, but I do know that that's the idea of a collection of, of individuals who function as one unit, who strive together. As the Church of Jesus Christ, we're not standing firm and striving together in some temporal war of limited consequences. And I don't mean to dismiss the Alamo, but compared to eternity in the gospel, temporal consequences. We don't stand together in some temporal war of limited consequences or in some athletic contest of varying degrees of entertainment. We stand our ground and strive together for the faith of the gospel. And we are to do it with one spirit and one mind. The five basketball players, one team, striving together, one spirit and one mind. Those of you who have uh, served in the military or played organized sports or been part of a small team at work on a project or volunteered for a service project, you understand the importance of unifying around a singular mission, a singular goal, a singular objective, a singular outcome, one that is, is greater than any single individual involved in the endeavor. Team members who are unified around a common mission, they set aside selfish ambition for the sake of the cause. They're, they're willing to empty themselves for the sake of the cause. Team members who are unified around a common goal, they set aside uh, empty conceit for the sake of the cause. They're willing to serve others. There's no job beneath them. Team members who are unified around a common objective, they humble themselves for the sake of the cause. Team members who are unified around a common outcome, they're willing to be obedient to what has been asked of them for the sake of the cause. And so it is with the church. Our only, only our outcome, our objective, our goal, our mission is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that God provided salvation from our sin. And that is a key word, sin. You will never value, you will never treasure your salvation so deeply as you do when you have a full and complete understanding of the depth of your own sin. A full and complete understanding of the righteous judgment of God and that God provided salvation from that sin and that judgment. The fact that salvation was provided by His grace, not earned, not deserved, just provided just provided, just offered to you out of the overflowing uh, abundance of God's love and His goodness and His mercy, the overflowing abundance of His righteous character, the fact that it's a, a simple acceptance of this salvation through faith and repentance and confession and baptism, and it's yours. The fact that salvation sets us on a new path, not of perfection, but of good works, sets us on a, a new path in life. And the fact that all of this is possible because of the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that salvation, that new life, that new path was purchased at a high price. That that hope and promise cost, and it cost dearly. It's the simple, beautiful gospel message. But we're to be fearless. We're to be fearless because the gospel has always had opponents. The early church faced a lot of pressure from a number of different sectors. There was enormous social pressure and family pressure and economic pressure and religious pressure and political pressure to abandon the faith, pressure to never take it up. Those pressures often uh, bloomed into full-fledged true persecutions, evidenced by the fact that Paul is writing to the Philippian church from prison for preaching the gospel. And Paul is living out what he is challenging them to do, what he challenges us to do, to fearlessly stand firm and strive together for the gospel. And if they were going to stand firm and strive together for the gospel, they had to do it together. And they had to be fearless because it was going to cost them. American Christians simply have not experienced this. The first church did. Most Christians throughout history have. Most of our brothers and sisters around the world today do. And it is often said that persecution is the natural state of the church, but I don't think that's true. The natural state of the church is to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season, amidst persecution or amidst peace. Whatever situation we're in, our natural state, our intended state, is the promotion and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to contend for the gospel. But the church in America has never really had to do that during persecution. Not yet, anyway. Maybe not ever. It's possible. But it seems unlikely. My, uh, my parents remember a time when the culture was generally Christian. You might say generically Christian. Um, someone joined your church at that time and the biggest concern might be that they were only doing it uh, because it was advantageous to them in some way, economically or politically. You know, it's good business to join a local church and be involved in the community. It's, it's uh, uh, not really going to be good for you to try to get elected to office unless you join some church and at least attend with some regularity. Now, these ideas and concepts were foreign to the first church. There was no economic or political gain to be had by joining a church, but there was a time in America where that was certainly a possibility and a reality. I don't remember that time. My parents do. I remember a time when it was very much live and let live. The lines were rather clearly drawn between those with a, a biblical worldview and those without a biblical worldview. But the hostility between the two groups was relatively low, relatively speaking. Now it seems that we're entering a new era. And I would very much like to be wrong about this, but it seems that we're entering a new era where the idea of a generally Christian culture is laughable. I mean, that's been over for decades. And the days of live and let live appear to be uh, slipping away from us rather rapidly. Today, you will be made to care. And you must care about the right things. And you must care about the right things in the right way or you will pay. 
And the problem with this is that nearly all of those right things are absolutely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, they're really just sin with a string of half-baked excuses born of pseudo-psychology and pseudo-sociology. But here's the thing, that's good news. It's good news because I'm a wretched sinner full of lame excuses who found grace and forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, and I know that there is grace and forgiveness and salvation available to everyone. Even the one who's currently raging against God, cursing the name of Jesus and plunging headlong into every sin they can find, insisting that the rest of us call right wrong and wrong right. There's salvation, there's grace, there's hope for even that person. But the saving grace of the gospel will not spread to lost souls if we do not stand firm in it. All of it the entire message, if we don't strive together for it, all of it, the entire message, it will not spread to others who need it if we are not fearless about it. My greatest concern is not that serious persecution will come to the church in America. It may, it may not. My greatest concern is that American Christianity is so easily frightened into silence and inaction. I fear we cave and we compromise, and we do so particularly on sin and the righteous judgment of God. But those are foundational, absolutely foundational to the gospel message. If I don't know what I need to be safe from, why in the world would I ever embrace a Savior? Why would I do that? We must preach the whole gospel. I fear we cave and compromise because of what I call the soft persecution of social pressure. It's not much of a persecution, but I fear it's very effective on the American church. We just want to be seen as nice. We've boiled everything down to just being nice, and in the process we've boiled away the entirety of the New Testament and a large part of the gospel. And being nice is great for Mr. Rogers working with three-year-olds, but it is a disaster for the spread of the gospel. And I'm not talking about being nice in contrast to being mean. I'm talking about being nice in contrast to being firm, to standing our ground, to striving and contending for the gospel. I fear we see even the slightest bit of confrontation as unloving, the problem is someone needs to tell the Apostle Paul that, who literally wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the, the love chapter, because he clearly didn't get the memo. He was more willing, he was more than willing, to lovingly confront sin and present the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of salvation. In fact, in this passage, he is in prison for preaching the gospel and starting a riot. That's why he's in prison. I fear we are so aware of our own sin, and, and that is a good thing, to be aware of your own sin. But I fear we're so aware of our own sin that we let it stop us of speaking to others about sin and salvation for fear of being called a hypocrite. But anyone who has confessed their sins before God and humbled themselves before Him for salvation is not a hypocrite when they talk about sin and salvation. They're just someone who knows. But it is not loving to climb into a life raft 
and not invite others aboard because we fear what they may call us from the waters in which they are drowning. That's not loving. I fear we have adopted a worldly definition of love that says you must accept and support all manner of sin. You must call that which is unrighteous righteous or you're hateful somehow. But Paul himself tells us in the love chapter of 1 Corinthians that true love, real love, not some worldly definition, but biblical love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I have used the word we on purpose. This has been a very convicting sermon to write. I've also spoken of, in generalities, about the American church. But Castle Hills is our little corner of the kingdom of God. And I think it would behoove each of us to ponder personally, and perhaps for the leadership to ponder on a church level. How fearlessly do we keep the gospel message of sin and salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ at the center of our lives and at the center of our church? Are we fearlessly standing firm for the faith of the gospel in one spirit? Are we fearlessly striving together for the faith of the gospel with one mind?